So I said, it's too bad golf doesn't start with a P. Yes. So you could say he's one of my favorite Paulfers. So uh, there was a businessman downtown LA recently who went up and a homeless man came up, uh, disheveled, smelly, alcohol in his breath, and unshaven, clothes with holes in him. And he says, hey, buddy, can you give me a couple bucks for a meal? So the guy compassionately reaches in his wallet, pulls out a couple bucks, and just as he's about to hand it to the guy, he says, you're not going to spend this on greens fees, are you? <laughs> and the guy said, buddy, I haven't played golf in 20 years. The guy put the money back in his wallet. He says, I'm taking you home. I'm going to have my wife cook a nice meal for you. And the guy says, well, why would you want to do that? He says, I want her to see what happens to somebody who stops playing golf. <laughs> so, Well, one of, uh, one of my um, daughters had a habit of coming home at the end of school and saying, is there any meal for me? Uh, there's mail for us today. Uh, we've got mail, and it's coming from Revelation. And you've been in a series on the seven churches of Revelation, and you've been taking the words that Jesus gave to those churches, and what you've been doing, you've been running them uh, through your own life, through the filter of, of those churches to see what Jesus might have to say to you. Now, I don't know about you, but Curtis' message last week just kind of expose some of the subtle cultural differences or influences that distract me in my relationship with Christ. And it also made me want to go out and buy some white stones and give one to each of you uh, this week. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you need to go back and listen to Curtis' sermon from last week. And then a few weeks ago, Brian, who, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, Brian, but whenever you lead in prayer, I just feel like Daffy Duck when I pray. I mean, uh, thank you for your, your pastor words. But, but, but Brian, um, he taught us about the church at Smyrna and, and the verdict that Jesus gave regarding the condition of that church. And then Jesus gave an exhortation to the Christians who were there. And it's one that, you know, they needed to hear about uh, a promise of reward and the promise to those who overcome and the threat of persecution, and probably the presence of persecution as well. And you might say that to overcome uh, is to be associated with Jesus, who is the ultimate overcomer. And uh, in fact, Jesus made this statement in John 16, 13. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And then joy, she kicked off the series at, with the church at Ephesus. And that was such an impressive church. Uh, in many ways, the church, at least to some degree, I hope that's the kind of church you want to be. Uh, this church that was unashamedly committed to sound theology and to faithful doctrine to the scripture. And this church that just exalted the name of Jesus above all the names, uh, other names. And, and this was a church that pursued good deeds and, and works of righteousness that glorified the Lord in that place. This was a faithful church. This was a solid church. Don't, don't you want to be that church? Yet Jesus said there's one thing at Ephesus that they were lacking. And, and Joy brought this out. He said, you, you've lost your first love. And so we have to all be careful that over time we're not a church that finds ourselves in love with ideas about God 
but not in love with God himself. And we know that there's a real tendency for churches to get so caught up in their heads that they completely get detached in their hearts. And we drift away from Christ and our love and our affection to him. And, and it's a struggle for many. Join, join the human race. And, and so I hope that the Lord will continue to stir your affections for him. And, and he'll line your hearts if you've gotten off of center. And it's a dangerous kind of trap. And we need to constantly assess our affections for the Lord and what might steal those affections away. And then we repent of those things. In fact, Joy brought that out. Now today, I want to pose the question from a whole different angle. What if that's not your struggle? What if you're really honest and your struggle is actually the complete opposite? What if you're one who instead of being truth with uh, all truth with no love, you find yourself struggling with being love with no truth? I mean, what does it look like to be that kind of church? To be marked by love without discernment in the name of tolerance and to end up loving things that Jesus hates. This too can be a real struggle. And that's a whole different kind of church and that's exactly where we find ourselves today in Thyatira. It's in Revelation chapter two and I wanna give you just a quick little background here because I think it will help to understand uh, what we're, what we're going to look at in this text in just a minute and, uh, and to see it more clearly. Thyatira is in a strategic location because it's on an intersection of a major trade route that connects Europe and Asia. And if you're going to buy goods and, and sell goods anywhere in the Roman world, you're going to go through Thyatira. And so because this is a trade route and because it's a strategic location, archaeologists have found evidence of what, are, what we would call trade guilds. In the first century, you see, they didn't have a government social security system or welfare or Medicare or any sort of 401Ks. Uh, none of those things were there to fall back on. So they formed guilds. These were like unions where you group together with a specific vocation or a trade in order to help each other and it would help make your business flourish. And so you had a bond with these trade guilds and, and they were a combination of kind of a workers union meets extended family meets fraternity or sorority or meets kind of a welfare system. And what they found in Thyatira is that there were a vast number of guilds. There would be, you know, uh, woodworking guilds. And those who were in the business of wool would have linen guilds. And there were tanner guilds or leather guilds. And there were baker's guilds and potter's guilds and guilds even of slave trading. But the two biggest guilds that were there were a bronze guild and a dyer's guild. And by dyers, I don't know people were dying. They, they were color, they were color dye. So Thyatira was known for making purple dye, which is 
a pretty rigorous and also an expensive task in those days. That color was so hard to find that the Romans world, in the Roman world, that only the, the most wealthy people could really afford it, and it became known for royalty. There was something in the richness of the soil that they found that they could grow certain roots that would produce this color. If you're familiar with this story, it's in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Uh, Paul comes to the city of Philippi, and it says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So she was probably, or I would say most likely, a part of the Dyer's Guild at one point when she was in Tyatira. But the thing about these guilds is that every guild had a specific patron deity, and that kind of ruled over the guild. They, they needed to know, you know, that, that would be the, the, the deity that they would somehow serve or honor or worship in order for that deity to bless their guild, which they thought would bless. By the way, that reminds me of one more golf uh, story. Uh, I was playing in a, a uh, scramble tournament, and this guy, it, the th clouds were threatening to rain and stuff. And this guy knew that I was a pastor, and he came up, he says, hey, pastor, do you think there's anything you could do about the weather? <laughs> <laughs> and I told him, listen, I'm in sales, not management. So, uh, <laughs> but... Um, but anyway, they had this feeling that somehow these deities would bless their, 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 their guilds and it would help increase the prosperity of their, of their livelihood. And so the most common deity that was worshipped in Thyatira was a Greek god, Apollo. And Apollo, interestingly enough, do you know what his son's name was? Zeus. And so the nickname for Zeus... Uh, or, or, or he, he, uh, the nickname for Apollo became the son of God. So many of the guilds, they chose Apollo as the patron deity, and they would worship the son of God for their guilds. And the way that you would invoke Apollo or any other of the patron deities for your guild is you would create worship parties known as guild feasts. And, and, and this became kind of an act of worship. And they'd have these guild feasts, they say, as often as two times a month. And what they would do, their primary way of invoking the blessing of these, these deities so that their business would flourish is they would typically have an animal and they would sacrifice it in the temple as an act of worship to Apollo. And, and, and then they would take the flesh the meat back to people's houses, and they would eat it, and they'd acknowledge that Apollo had provided for them. And then when you were done with dinner, your guild might recline and drink a little wine for the rest of the night, maybe become a little intoxicated, and at that point, you'd start exchanging some sexual pleasures with one another. And they might bring in some slaves who had served, uh, uh, served them, and... Uh, perhaps some temple prostitutes, and even exchange uh, favors with other members of the guild. And this was all done in an attempt to honor the patron deity of your guild, and doing so was crucial, and it's important to understand this, because if you didn't participate in the guild feast, 
you ran the risk of removing the hand of blessing from that deity for your business. Now, with that background, and I know I got too far into that, but imagine what it would be like for a Christian who's living in that place. Because here's the deal. If you don't participate in these guild fees, you run the risk of offending the gods, and they may not pour out on you their blessing on the guild, which represents your craft, which means it won't flourish, which means you're not going to be making any money. And so you can't allow that. And therefore, you've got to participate. But if you're a Christian who comes in and says, hey, wait a second, I serve Jesus. I don't serve Apollo. I can't do this. I can't eat that sacrificed animal because it was an act of worship, not to Jesus, but to Apollo. And I, I'm surely not going to lay in a bed right here for my own sexual enjoyment because the marriage bed is to be kept sacred and uh, between a husband and a wife and in a covenant of marriage and in a way that would reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I can't, I won't give myself away to somebody else in bed. And so what do you do if you don't participate in the guild feast? Well, you're part of the guild and if you're not part of the guild, you don't work. And if you don't work, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, your family doesn't eat. And you're a dead man walking. So what do you do? And this is exactly the struggle and the temptation that the church at Thyatira faced. And frankly, I think we're all wise enough to know that this is Exactly what I think we find ourselves in in our nation right now as well. Jesus' prayer in John 17 comes to mind. He said, we are in the world, but not of the world. And that's the church at Thyatira. And so the question now becomes, how do they fare with so much temptation to compromise what they really believed? And the very first verse of this letter and true, by the way, of every church that you've studied so far and you will study, is that Jesus introduces himself by using the description that John referred to him back in the first chapter of Revelation. But they are specific to the church that's being addressed at the time. Now notice how Jesus appears in verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Tyratira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like banished or burnished bronze. I think that's an interesting picture of Jesus. The very first thing that Jesus wants his church to know about him is that he is the Son of God, not Apollo. And this is interesting because in the entire book of Revelation, this is the only time that the phrase Son of God is used. And it's right here to this city that they find themselves in the worship of Apollo, the son of Zeus, and Jesus establishes the fact that indeed he is the son of God and he is sovereign over their lives. And this appearance of Jesus is not just as the one who illumines the church by his presence among them. This is the Jesus that it says, whose eyes are flames of fire. And it says, he... he, he he sees everything, 
and his feet are burnished bronze, and by the way, that would mean white hot. His brass feet are ready to tread in judgment. Now, by the way, do you think that that would have been a connecting sign to the bronze guild of Tyratira? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is not one of those tea party with Jesus meetings right here. <laughs> this is the son of God who is kindled and ready to judge. It's a very sobering moment in the life of this church or any church. And yet Jesus comes out of the gate and he's going to commend this church. And he's going to describe the things that are all symbolic or representative of the deeds that this church is committed to. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. And the first thing is they're committed to, to what Jesus says is your church of love. Now that's interesting. This is in stark contrast to Ephesus that Joy talked about a few weeks ago about how they had lost their first love. But, but that's what's even more interesting to me is this love doesn't appear to be connected to the person of Jesus. But actually it appears to be connected to the deeds of the church, meaning that the church is probably incredibly loving to people. They're other-centered. They care about those in need. They have compassion for those in the church and in the community. They're marked by a love or for others and by things that they do for others. And it's really a beautiful picture when you think about it. And secondly, they're a church that's marked by faith. They have great trust. They have a great dependence of everything they're committed to, and that it's worthwhile, and that God will supply their needs, and that he will meet the mission of this church, and that they will be his hands and feet. And this is a church that just loves to serve others. They just don't care about others. They demonstrate it through their deeds. They're probably a church that has a high bar in the social justice, uh, you know, uh, metric. They see the injustices around them, and they see a lack of needs that are being met, and so they eagerly step in to meet those needs. And this church is also marked by perseverance, that whenever you're committed to this kind of mission, it's going to be wearisome. But yet they did not quit. They labored through it. They patiently endured, and they held fast to the mission of Christ. And Jesus says, not only are they doing these things well, but he says they're exceeding in doing these things. Verse 19 says, you are now doing more than you did at first. Your deeds are way better than they were when you started. This is a church that's just getting better and better at caring for other people. And this is an amazing church. And just as Joy shared a few weeks ago, after reading the commendation to the church at Ephesus, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like this? I mean, sign me up. I'm in. I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I, I'm tired of playing church. I, I want to be the church. It's a beautiful picture. But when you think about the correlation of this church's commendations, that were given, and those at Ephesus, there's no mention here about a commitment to doctrinal truth. There's no mention here about biblical discernment. There's no mention of their eagerness to guard against immorality in the church. Look at verse 20. Jesus tells us what's missing. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. 
you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and to eating of food sacrificed to idols. So whatever it is that this church is, they pride themselves in tolerance. And by the way, isn't that a buzzword in our culture today? Tolerance? And it's a word that is loudly preached in our culture today. And the only problem with this particular tolerance is that it's a church that has a high tolerance for the things that Jesus does not tolerate. This is a scary place to be. And, and so let's unpack it just in the last couple of minutes we have. We know that there's a historical woman named Jezebel back in First and Second Kings. She was a Phoenician woman who married one of the kings of Israel by the name of Ahab. And we know that she was a wicked woman and she led God's people into the worship of, of the fertility god Baal. She convinced her husband that, and then obviously convinced the whole nation later on, that people should worship both God and participate in the pagan immorality associated with, the, with Baal at, at the same time. I would say she was the Cruella developer. Cruella Devel of her day, you know. An interpretation of this, by the way, is that the name Jezebel became a proverbial name. She's just a Jezebel. And the name became synonymous and with kind of compromise and immorality. And so maybe this person in Thyatira was a proverbial Jezebel who was deceiving people. Some biblical writers have, have suggested maybe she was a literal Jezebel, that, that that was her name. Now, I've never met anybody who named their daughter Jezebel, but, uh, but we know one thing, that Jezebel, whoever it was in Thyatira, was called a prophetess. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. And I want to be clear about this, that it's not her sex that was wrong. It was her teaching that was wrong. There are a lot of other women prophets in the Bible. The Old Testament lists, lists those who are well-respected by Israel. In the book of Acts, we're told that Philip, he, had, he was the spirit-filled evangelist who had four daughters who were prophetesses and who prophesied within the church. So whichever it is, a proverbial Jezebel or an actual person named Jezebel, we know what, this. She is the one that here in Thyatira has given false teaching. Teaching that runs counter to the scriptures. Now remember what the tension was in this church. I need to work. If I don't participate in these guilds, I won't work. But I don't want to sell out Christ. And so here comes a false teacher, Jezebel, and she says, hey, it's okay. You can, you can actually have both. I, I'm a prophetess. God sent me to tell you it's okay. He understands. He knows how hard it is to get ahead in business. He just wants you to be happy. He wants you to work. And so it's okay with these tensions that you're facing. And truth be known, you don't have to follow those old primitive, outdated teachings of the early church fathers. I mean, they are so out of touch. I mean... The church has evolved so much since then. We're, we're far more progressive now. Now we are so diverse and we're so loving. 
you know, way more than those bump Bible trumpers over in Ephesus. And so, so now you can feel free to worship Jesus and you can feel free to worship Apollo and you can feel free to experiment sexually if you want and you can identify with whoever you want to identify with. It's totally okay. Nobody here is going to judge you because all isn't, uh, after all, isn't that what the church is supposed to be? Loving and tolerant. Does that sound familiar? That's the narrative of our culture right now. And that's not just coming from the world. That's coming from Christian schools right here in California. It's coming from professing Christian churches here in Orange County. That's how tolerance works. That's how it gets twisted. This is the kind of false teaching that some in the church at Tyatira were embracing. And look what happens in verse 24, how they're going to call it, how Jesus is going to call it. Satan's so-called deep secrets, another translation reads, the deep things of Satan. Now, this teaching is not loving. This teaching is not open-minded. This teaching is not progressive. This teaching, he says, is demonic. Jesus refuses to allow his bride, the church, for whom his righteousness cost him his own life for these people, to turn around and to call holy what Jesus calls unholy. But here's the beauty of Jesus. In the face of all the compromises happening in this church, he's incredibly merciful. Look at verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Jesus delays his judgment. Peter made this point in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, or chapter 3, uh, uh, verse 9, that the reason that Jesus has not already judged us is because of his kindness. Look what it says. He says, he is patient towards us, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You've got to understand Jesus is incredibly generous with his mercy. He has given these false teachers time to repent, but they would not. And so in verse 22, we have three consequences that come down the pike. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. One translation says they will go into great tribulation. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. The New American Standard Version on this says, and I will kill her children with plague. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So there's a sequence there. The first thing Jesus says is going to happen is she's, she's unwilling to repent, so she's going to be thrown down on a bed of suffering and sickness. Now, some speculate that this is going to be a physical sickness. Others say this plague is coming is going to be spiritual. But whichever way it's intended to mean, the truth is the same. That the church, if it will not repent of embracing immorality in the name of tolerance and love, then its immune system is going to fail. This is an incredibly unhealth, unhealthy uh, body shutdown of Christ's church. That's, that's ultimately what he's talking about. The consequence is fitting too, because it says she has profaned the marriage bed and will now be thrown down on another bed, a bed of suffering. 
And by the way, that's the exact same thing that happened to Jezebel back in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 9, because of her immorality and her deception, she was literally thrown down on a bed of death. And, and some have wondered or speculated, is this referring to literal sickness because we're taking, and we see this plague even that some of us are experiencing here right now, but whether this is literal or figuratively spiritual, the point is just the same. If the church will not repent of its immoral compromise with the world and the explicit disregard for Jesus' clear commands, then we become unhealthy. And we're going to end up in the hospital at the church. Which is to lead to the second thing, and Jesus described as tribulation. A painful long-suffering of the church that will come upon them. And that sickness will eventually lead to spiritual hospice, which will lead to a third thing, which is the death of her children, it says. And I think this is the idea of Jezebel the Tyatira, whoever was a false teacher. It was her followers. These false teachers, all of them had born people in their teaching, and they were born into immorality by their teaching. And again, this is, I think, almost the exact thing that happened uh, because what uh, God said to Ahab through the prophet Elijah back in 1 Kings chapter 21 uh, regarding Jezebel's sons. And in 2 Kings 10, it records that they were all slaughtered uh, because they had sold out to evil. Hey, I know i got to land the plane here. 1 Kings 21.5, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. Do you see how severe this is for the church? This is not Jesus coming along and threatening to remove his lampstand. This is Jesus making all-out war against the church, saying, if you don't repent, I will literally, physically take you out. And those are harsh words. And this is kind of a warning shot across the bow of the church. And, and as much as the church needs to hear the message of how dangerous it can be for us to hold on to truth, yet forsake our love for Christ, we equally need to hear this message. That it's equally dangerous to simply chase after tolerance and immorality and yet do so in complete disagreement to the truth. We've got to do both, truth and love. Or else compromise occurs, and then the church dies. And I was thinking about this week of experiences in my own life of people who I have known who have fallen, and were, well, in many different ways, but let's just say sexually. Some of the most significant people in my spiritual growth and development have all, are all out of the ministry today because of sexual immorality. And uh, you even know some of those names. In each of those situations, I've thought to myself, how in the world did those guys get there? And it didn't happen overnight. It was just a slow drifting. 
It was a compromise of always justifying what you were doing, finding ways to revise the scriptures and, and to make them say what we want them to say so that our conscience will be eased, so that we can enjoy the things of our flesh. And it's one thing when it's on an individual level, but it scares me when you think on any different day my affections could turn towards lesser things and I might chase after them, but it's another thing when the whole church embraces it. How does a church get to this place of such zealous love for the Lord and staunch commitment to the truth and yet fast forward, totally sell out to tolerance and love? We, and I say we, thank you, uh, Curtis, for talking about we're a part of a network of churches. So when I say we, me, we, as a local expression of Christ Church, we need to be all love and we need to be all truth. It's not one or the other. This isn't multiple choice. It's not a, a you know, I'm not a prophet, but I don't, I don't think that our culture is making it any easier for us and especially for our children. Uh, and I think it's probably already there, and it's certainly just a matter of time before we're going to see more and more people who will take a stand like this, and we're going to be facing compromise. Do I sell out to Jesus in order to get this promotion? Do I sell him out because the world says this is okay, even though Jesus says it's not okay? Do I sell it out at the risk of gaining the whole world and losing my own soul? And when we look at our culture 60 years ago, you couldn't get a promotion unless you belonged to a local church. Today, you might not get a promotion if you're connected to a local church, a reputable church in your area. I, I don't have time to tell you of all the people who have made comments sometimes years ago about the sanctity of marriage or the, or the family or about sexual purity, and somehow somebody saw that and now they've labeled them as a bigot because they're intolerant or because they don't affirm, affirm the latest ideologies and philosophies that are going on in our culture. Just because I affirm that marriage is between a man and a woman doesn't make me a hater. As Christians, we're going to have to learn how to take a stand. We're going to have to learn how, what it means to, to lose everything potentially in this life in order to gain everything in Christ. So what do you do when you find yourself there? What do you do when you find yourself on the edges of compromise? Well, let's get to the end of the text. Jesus says, verse 24, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will, impose any, I will not impose any burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. We're going to have to learn to hold fast to the precious promises and the truths of what Jesus says is true and what is not all the, all the way to the end, which is, is the consummation of Christ when he returns. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, my will, not Jezebel's, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and with a dash that in, uh, and will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
just as I have received authority from the Father. By the way, Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 2 there. Um, so uh, there's a day coming when Jesus says, I'll give you everything back. More than this world has to offer, you will be, it will be under your feet with me in that day. And then verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. A lot of different understandings about the morning star in the Bible, but the, in this context, the morning star represents the presence of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.1 and Revelation 22 called Jesus the morning star. He is the dawning of a new day. He's the one that when he returns, he will make all things new with his presence. And then he concludes, verse 29, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in a day when churches are being tempted to tolerate sin so that we don't lose our credibility in the world, <laughs> may good, good Shepherd be a church that stays steadfast and rooted in truth and in love. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering message from Thyatira. We thank you that you're a merciful God and that for those of us who have and no doubt will wander at times, you are a pursuant God who loves to come and rescue us, who loves to come and restore us to you through your love and affection for us and through the counsel and the truth of your word. So Lord, would you help us as we live in such a day where the narrative of our culture is to tolerate anything other than what Jesus said? God, would you help us to know what it's like to walk the line of being in the world and not of the world so that we might hold fast to the timeless truths of Scripture and that we would not depart from Jesus. May we demonstrate the affections that we say we have towards you and our willingness to follow you and to align our lives with the truth of your word rather than making your word adjust to ours. Father, we ask this for the good of our souls for the health of the church, and for the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name because we believe these are things that he would pray. Amen.